This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into Indiana's power grid, how it works, how it's outdated, and we are looking into renewable alternatives the state could explore to transition into more sustainable forms of energy. This week, we talked to Solar Indiana Renewable Energy Network, aka Siren, communications manager Ann Hedden, who walked us through the different types of electric utilities there are in the U.S., how solar and wind energy help to reduce strain on the grid, what net metering is and why we need to re-implement similar legislation, and what we can hope for in the future with renewable energy in Indiana. According to its webpage, Siren is a leading educator and promoter of renewable energy and conservation in Indiana. It's an independent, nonpartisan, volunteer-run group with a focus on promoting solar power. Hedden elaborated on the inner workings of Siren. Solar Indiana Renewable Energy Network. And we're educators. We're also organizers. Um, we organize the SolarS campaign here in the city um, and in Bloomington, you know, Bloomington and Monroe County. And uh, we're also, uh, the model that we developed in 2016 spun off and was taken statewide. And the group that took it statewide is called Solarize Indiana. And we're one of the city teams within that group. So... Um, a renewable energy network is not a distribution <laughs> network, wish it were, but, you know, um, it's a network of people who supply education and, organize, and organizing services mm -hmm. to facilitate the spread of solar and renewable energy so that people become more aware of what's possible. Head and first walk through the difference between investor-owned utilities rural and electric management cooperatives, and municipal utilities. Duke is one of five investor-owned utilities here in the state of Indiana. It's the biggest one. In fact, it's one of the biggest ones um, nationally. But they're regulated business in Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Indiana. I think they might even be in Kentucky as well makes them a really dominant player in this region. And all of the investor-owned utilities are guaranteed to have monopoly within their territories. And Duke has monopoly within like two-thirds of the counties of um, Indiana. So they're the big player. And that's why they um, can call in so many resources if the power goes down if the grid goes down. But um, it's also why they may be distracted by problems help you know, happening elsewhere mm -hmm. where they have to cover a lot of bases at the same time when a storm is really widespread. Um, so 
the investor-owned utilities, the five investor-owned utilities in Indiana, um, generate and buy and distribute power. And then there's the REMCs, which are uh, the Rural and Electric uh, Management Cooperatives, and they get their power from Hoosier Energy or Wabash Valley Energy, which are like Duke and the other investor-owned utilities. They're um, they're the central supplier for their region, and they um, are responsible for supplying power and also managing the trans transmission lines in their territory. So the where they differ from Duke and the investor-owned utilities is that they are owned by the members of the cooperative. So they're wholly owned by their um, their customers. And that's kind of the model that you were thinking of for the city. There are municipal utilities, um, though not many in Indiana, um, but that's a category that um, is sometimes... Um, if the city wants to support the infrastructure for it, it's expensive, but it does give local control. But um, generally speaking, it's the less familiar model. Hedden explained how solar panels work to power your house and the surrounding area and highlighted how this reduces the distance that electricity has to travel. The first thing that solar panels do is they power your house. Anything that's left over, I mean, if your house is not using up all of the energy that your panels produce, then it goes out over the um, transmission lines to your neighbor, and your neighbor uses it. So one of the benefits of people going solar is that um, it, when, when they supply surplus energy to the, to the grid, it's usually in summer, in late afternoon, when the grid is already stretched and is, you know, that's when you get your blackouts and your brownouts is when the, um, there's more demand than there is ready supply. Not because of like air conditioners and things? Yeah, because those air conditioners kick off <laughs> and people crank them up, uh -huh. right? And so the fact that somebody has a solar, um, has a solar system in the neighborhood, any they're, they're producing the maximum amount of electricity at that time. And if it's more than what their house needs, it goes next door. And the next door neighbor uses it. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the electric company bills the next door neighbor for the retail rate. So, it, you know, it's not like the energy is um, costing the electric company anything to produce at that moment. And it also reduces the loss of energy that occurs when electricity is sent over long distances on the transmission lines. There's resistance in those lines. Um, so if you're supplying all of those needs from a central station and then sending it 
50 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles away to um, a substation that then sends it out into the local area. Well, in the course of traveling all that distance, a lot of the electricity is lost, maybe up to a hundred, maybe up to about fifty percent, depending on how hot it is outside, how much traffic there is on the lines, all sorts of variables reduce the efficiency of supplying energy because it's lost from the point of of generation to the point of use. So one of the big benefits of rooftop solar under individual on individual roofs is that it it cuts out that loss of energy. And so in a, a hot summer, and we're not obviously getting hot summers, and they're going to be hotter, right? Climate change means that more people are going to be flipping on their air conditioners at and offsetting higher temperatures outside using more energy. So anyway, and not to get too far down in the weeds on this, basically um, it is a great benefit to the grid, and the grid is the, all of the um, both the generating points, the distribution points, and all the connecting lines amongst them. After our interview with Kerwin Olson last week, we were curious to know more about how your solar panels would power your home during a storm. Eden explained that if your power goes out and your solar panels are connected to the grid, your system will go out along with the grid. However, she walked through another way to install your solar power called islanding that could prevent this problem. If your house had power and was feeding that power onto the lines, then somebody who's trying to get to repair a line that had been downed by a tree or whatever mm-hmm. could be electrocuted if there was electricity traveling on the line from even a single source. Yes. So that's why that happens. Solar systems are constructed so that if the grid goes down, the system shuts off. When the grid comes back up, the system comes back up. Now, there are ways that you can nonetheless keep power to your to your house by islanding, it's called, islanding your house so that um, it is not feeding energy to the grid during the time that the grid itself is, is shut down. And so your uh, solar system can be installed in such a way that there's a circuit um, that... Um, goes to support um, a chosen group of of load. Um, for an example, most often people want to keep that refrigerator from melting <laughs> down. So it, it is possible that the solar panels could continue to produce, but all the energy is kept internal to the house and it feeds one particular circuit and on that circuit are the things that you want to be able to keep going while um, the rest of the grid is shut down. And that has to be something that you do when you install the system. And um, the other and easier way to do this is actually to buy batteries so that 
all the energy that's stored in that battery prior to the, the grid going down mm-hmm. is available as backup if the grid goes down and your system is shut off. So those are two ways that you can continue to have an, uh, a power supply generated by your own solar system. The U.S. Department of Energy claims that Americans experience more outages than any other developed nation. The U.S. has seen a 67% increase in major outages from weather-related events since 2000. The Department of Energy says that we need to build in a smarter, more sustainable way to withstand increasingly frequent climate hazards. The DOE says, quote, on-site renewable energy systems such as rooftop solar with battery storage not only provide ongoing, non-polluting, affordable power that help tackle climate change, they prove remarkably resilient to severe weather, end quote. You're listening to Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Hedden addressed concerns that have come up with solar panels and the mining of materials needed. She said that the long-term benefits outweigh the consequences. There's no doubt that you do have to um, go through a mining and manufacturing process to create solar and to create solar panels. But um, a year's operation of that system is likely to offset whatever the need for materials had been at the, you know, at, at the beginning. So... Um, I, uh, your analogy to the Prius situation is good. I mean, nothing is without cost in this world. Mm-hmm. Trade-offs are always necessary. But are you making the best trade-off? You know, yes, um, it's important to think about whether or not a proposed solution is just the best we can do at the time or whether... It is the best solution for the situation, all things considered, all inputs measured, all um, production costs considered, all labor costs considered, all impact on social justice issues considered. But a lot of that work has been done. I think you'd find that there's a, the people who have done the work agree that the amount of work that goes into creating the solar panels is worth it because um, they do such a good job. Hedden shared that in addition to solar, another available renewable energy source in Indiana is wind power. Um, We do harness wind, and it's in the northern part of the state because that's where the land is flat, Mm -hmm. and the wind is just blowing out of the west every afternoon. I remember bicycling and having the wind just keep me from even coming downhill. And Iowa has uh, 
I think Iowa is getting almost a half of its um, electricity from wind at this point. Um, but in the northern part of our state, um, it's not fully an it's not a fully exploited source at this moment, um, partially because of um, resistance um, on the local level. There have been disinformation campaigns saying that wind farms cause cancer and things like that. Not true. But anyway, it has prevented adoption on the scale that could be mm -hmm. um, and probably will be in the future. But at any rate, wind is a, is a big resource. We don't use wind that much in the southern part of the state because of all the hills and the trees breaking up the wind. So... Um, solar is the better resource down here for individuals. Hedden said that one of the benefits of solar and wind power is that they are the cheaper option. Wind is the cheapest per kilowatt source of electricity, and solar is next. So um, coals, um, it, is, it is more expensive to run an existing coal plant than it is to build a brand new solar farm. So um, the utilities um, understand dollars and cents like that. They do want to be in control of where solar farms are built, and they, um, they have that whole history of having monopolies in their territory, so they don't want to be fiddling with individual sites when they could be building large solar farms. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the largest solar farm in the nation is being built um, um, in the northern part of the state at this moment. It's called, very appropriately called Mammoth, the Mammoth Solar Farm. And it's going to have a huge output. Um, but long before um, Mammoth solar farm was, and it's a, it's a development opportunity. And developers um, are very sensitive to the political atmosphere because they can't afford to tie up their money forever um, fighting local resistance. So the, a new balance of power is being sought right now between the utilities and the, the private developers, private enterprise developers for who's going to build what, where. And um, they need the consent of local populations to do that. Investor-owned utilities and the REMCs are being faced now with the fact that running their existing plants are, is more expensive than building new solar or buying wind, uh, wind-generated energy. So they're trying to figure out how they're going to continue to make a profit while also they have all these um, assets on the book. They're coal-fired plants mm -hmm. that they're retiring now because they are so uneconomical and have been since the turn of the century, basically. Um, but what they were doing was instead building gas plants, gas-fired generation for electricity. And... Um, those have about a 30-year um, life cycle. So they want to continue to operate their old plants 
so that they get the use out of them um, and they're not using their money to build new things. Also, um, well, let's not go too deep into the weeds. <laughs> okay. But um, the state um, regulatory agency, the IURC, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, requires the utilities, the, the investor-owned utilities, the monopoly utilities, every couple of years to produce a plan for how much they're going electricity they're going to generate from what source. And this is called the IRP, that plan. It's, it's um, resource planning is what it is. And so I remember even like five or six years ago going to these IRP sessions, um, which the utility has to allow the public to come um, so at that time they were projecting, oh, and the, and the resource planning is done over a 20 year span. And so like in, it's a 20 year span from the point of view of the given year that they do the plan. And then a couple of years later, they do a 20 year span again. So like a, like a forest management plan. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of a rolling horizon. Mm-hmm. And so even like five, six years ago, they were projecting that they would get like 2%, 3% at most of their energy from solar or other renewable sources. Um, this is Duke. Um, okay. I, I didn't go to all of the, <laughs> the utility <laughs> meetings, but that's what Duke was projecting. Now they're projecting a higher amount because... The economics are catching up with them. Public sentiment is catching up to them. They realize that the government is increasingly going to require Mm -hmm. um, utilities to act um, to avert climate change, the the negative results of climate change. And they've always had it in mind that they would um, do so when they had to do so, but they didn't want to sacrifice their working plans before they had to. And so they've been sort of slow-walking things. In the meanwhile, you have um, private capital that is looking for investment possibilities and sees that solar and wind-generated energy are becoming extremely um, affordable. It takes about $2 uh, to produce a kilowatt-hour of, gen- of energy all the time, you know, mm-hmm. um, on a continuous basis um, in a huge um, solar farm with um, thousands and thousands of panels. So the private capital is now seeing a chance to supply the growing demand for ele- electricity because obviously everybody's using it, everybody needs it, and the um, if we're going to if we're going to avert the worst consequences of climate change, then we have to electrify everything and change the um, change the energy source that we use to generate that electricity 
from fossil fuels to renewable sources. Mm-hmm. So the developers are seeing that they can make a lot of money doing this, especially since the utilities have been kind of slow walking it. And to get to reducing our um, energy footprint by 50%, if possible, by 2030, which would give us the best possibility for averting further disruption to the climate, then got to make some speed here and got to work at scale. So there are private developers out there who have, for an example, arranged all the permits, who have um, purchased, uh, who have lined up purchasing agreements, who have arranged for the labor and all the rest of this, um, and working with city and county governments to create solar farms in various places. Now, Indiana is an ideal place to do that. Industry um, sources have figured that if um, a solar farm is built in the upper Great Lakes area, including especially Indiana, then um, its value in averting um, further consequences from burning fossil fuels is much greater than building another solar plant in California. So, you know, up to three to four times greater value to building in the Midwest because it's displacing all those fossil fuel burning plants. So right now we're in a kind of transition point where um, the action in solar is um, heating up. (laughs) Pardon my saying so. Um, Because um, of a variety of circumstances coming together. And um, people are beginning to understand the implications of it. One thing that helped incentivize a switch to solar power was net metering, which the Indiana legislature ended in 2017. Hedden outlined what net metering was and why they need to reinstate similar legislation. Okay, first of all, net metering was in in like 2004, 2005 under Mitch Daniels. And this was at a time when um, it was still a bipartisan agreement that it would be a good thing. Um, It was meant as an incentive for people to put in solar. And the incentive was this, that for every kilowatt hour that you produce, and used on your own property, you didn't pay anything because you'd already bought the equipment to produce it. But if you bought that same amount of um, energy from the utility, you would pay for it at their retail rate, which is depending on how much um, energy you buy from them in kilowatt hours. It's a tiered pricing system. So anyway, let's just use twelve cents an hour, twelve cents per kilowatt hour, as the um, average price that you'd be paying the utility. So you would pay this, if you get if you, you get it directly from the utility, you're paying the retail rate. Okay. 
which and, is what the neighbor would be paying anyways. Which is what the neighbor would be paying. And while net metering was still in effect, any excess that you produced and sent out would be valued at that retail rate. So it's a one-to-one swap um, for energy that, I mean, it was the same valuation whether you bought it from the utility or the utility bought it from you. Okay, so they would buy it from you. Well, they credit you. Okay, and, and then that would maybe just take off your bill for the they take hours it off your bill. that you... Right, for the kilowatt hours that that you produce and you send their way. And then they go and charge your neighbor the retail rate. So retail rate is the common standard of valuation for all of those situations. But when the utilities convinced the legislature to change the law and end net metering, which occurred in 2017, then... um, they the legislators themselves proposed a price, um, a pricing scheme whereby you would get, um, you would still pay the utilities uh, the retail rate if you purchased electricity from them, but if you send energy out to the the grid then they would credit you for 1.25% of the wholesale rate. And the wholesale rate is determined on a year's basis, year by year. It's an average of what the utility company pays if they buy um, on the wholesale market through MISO. Yeah, that's baloney because that means that you're basically going to get maybe four cents, maybe five cents credit. Um, now this year, because the price of gas spiked because of the war in Ukraine, the um, the wholesale rate is higher than it has been in previous years, and so this year the you're credited nine cents per kilowatt hour. But next year will probably fall back to four or five cents per kilowatt hour. So there's a dollar difference between um, what you're paying the utility and what they're crediting you. And what that did was it threw off the balance because generally, you know, if um, what previously under net metering, what people um, generated and sent to the um, and sent to the grid offset what they got at night because um, just to, because of the amount of sunshine there is in the course of the year, a huge amount in the summer, less in the winter. So you're not making as much in the winter, and so you need to get more from the utilities. And there's always that thin slice of hours after dark, where you're using utility power for um, for light and you know, running your refrigerator and all the rest of it. But um, there was an offset so that, um, generally speaking, if you had sized your system correctly, 
you paid the connection fee to the utilities, but the amount that you produced, the amount that you used on site, and the amount that you sent to the grid and were credited back, all balanced out so that you weren't paying anything extra. But now they not only changed the uh, compensation rate, but they also changed the way they uh, the the way the billing occurs, so that it used to be at the end of the month they would say, "Ha, you produced six hundred um, kilowatt hours, and you used only five hundred kilowatt hours from us, and so you have a hundred dollar a hundred kilowatt hour credit that's rolling over, and maybe next month you only make four hundred kilowatt hours." But you use 500. Well, you got a 100 kilowatt hour credit. And so that takes care of the difference, right? So by adding up the differences at the end of the month and billing you for the difference, mm-hmm. if, you were in the, if you were in the negative, then um, it made solar ownership really affordable because basically the system was paying its own way. Hedden shared some history on the end of net metering and the legal fight to bring it back. Vectrin announced its new, what they call EDG rate, is excess distributed generation rate, and the billing system that I was just explaining to you. And um, Various consumer advocate organizations, including Citizens Action Coalition and Solarize Indiana, which is this network of city teams helping people go solar by arranging group buy arrangements, and SUN, which is Solar United Neighbors, and it's the Indiana chapter of a national organization that's devoted to helping people um, with the same kind of, uh, a similar kind of group by arrangement. So those three organizations were um, um, opposed to the EDG rate that Vectrin announced and, um, and filed suit and one in the appeals court, but um, then it went to the Indiana Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sided with the utilities. So, sparing you any more further mm-hmm. deep de- deep details on that one, but anyway, that was the that was the main thing. So um, we were unable to overturn that metering. But a number of legislators have introduced um, bills attempting to return to net metering or to devise another fairer system than the current system. Um, For an example, the state of Indiana um, in 2017, the, uh, the legislature changed the net metering rule um, and establish an arbitrary um, valuation 
for excess energy sent back to the grid without having done any study of the value of solar. Um, They were asked to do so by many of the people giving testimony during the process, but they didn't do it. And so there is no real basis for the changes that were made to that law. Um, And so one of the things that we've been relying on is, um, but but I say we, that the the consumer advocates were relying on in, in protesting the bill is by pointing out that um, it did not, first of all, the um, change, the way Vectrin changed the rates was not even in accord with the language of the legislation. It departed from the language of the legislation and the legislation itself had been proposed without a prior study of the value of solar. Minnesota, for an example, has done a value of solar um, study um, that shows that, that individual rooftop solar owners contribute more value um, than the, the retail rate would compensate them for. The retail credit would compensate them for. They're providing more benefit rather than taking away from other people who don't own solar, which is what the argument is from the utilities. Well, you're cost shifting to other uh, customers of the utility. But the that argument is invalid unless you actually study what are the costs mm-hmm. and what are um, what are the benefits and how are they calculated. So, for an example, the whole thing about transmission, mm-hmm. um, the impact on transmission, or the impact on relieving the pressure of summer peak season, those aren't calculated in by the utility but they should be. At any rate, those particular, those things that I just mentioned to you are, are were not the grounds for the suit. The grounds for the suit were that the language that the legislature itself had chosen to frame the issue in, in 2017, did not agree with the language that was applied to the EDG rate. And so it changed what the legislature had supposedly intended and to the detriment of um, the class of solar owners. So anyway, that's um, what's happening now is that you have legislators um, proposing to go back to net metering or proposing variants were proposing doing that valuation study. Mm-hmm. And so the situation still could change, but um, it's a slow process of gaining legislative support because the utilities have historically had such strong 
support uh, among legislators. Um, and so you're at you're we're at a point where it is unclear what's going to happen um, for um, individual owners of solar systems um, to change the billing and payment systems that have been imposed. Um, but that it's possible that these things will change. There are still... Okay, for an example, um, there was a guy who wanted to put solar on his roof in Homeowners Association. His name is Joey Miles. And so he put up solar panels and the Homeowners Association said, hey, wait a second, this is not in agreement with our covenant. Uh, you got to take those things down. And so he engaged in like, I think, a five-year um, struggle to get the rules rewritten about homeowners associations and their ability to um, to refuse people the right to put solar on their roofs. And so now there is a, a law that says that homeowners associations have to allow um, it, their members to amend those rules and put solar on their roof. But it applies to new homeowners associations and not retroactively, as I understand it. Mm. So anyway, it's a long fight for individual rights. Um, it's always a longer fight for individual rights than it is for class action rights. Mm -hmm. um, but there is reason to believe that um, as people wake up to the situation that we're in, that those rules will change, but it is hard at this moment to predict how, when, where, you know, in what terms. And last but not least, we asked Hedden why transitioning to renewable energy is important. Well, I'll give you a personal anecdote. Um, my granddaughter was born at the beginning of a major heat wave and drought in 2012. And I was already aware that 2030 was a date that had been proposed by scientists as kind of, this is the latest date you can start getting serious about reducing the amount of fossil fuel um, generated greenhouse gas in the air without changing, without major disruptions to the climate. And so here it is, 2012, and all of a sudden we're having the long heat waves and droughts that were predicted for 2030. And I was frankly scared because little bitty infant, um, I thought, is this her life going forward? Is this, you know, she graduates from high school into this, into 90 days of over 90 degrees every day? And at that point, <laughs> I looked up Siren and I asked them to help me. And they helped me choose, they, they educated me, they helped me choose um, a vendor and a solar and the, the um, components of my solar system. I'm internally grateful. 
And so my ultimate reason for being involved in this is that for all of us, it's going to be a hard road to hold if the climate becomes even more unreliable than it currently is. And if there are more extremes of weather than we currently have. And if people continue to rely on fossil fuels to produce the energy that they increasingly demand. So it um, seems to me it's a matter of um, society taking the responsible view that if it is permitting activity that is detrimental to the public health to the extent that we know that um, we know that's coming, um, then you do something about it. And individual citizens can only do so much. Um, we have to, there has to be um, a more general reckoning with what are, what's causing our situation to deteriorate. What can we do about it? And how can we work together to make this work better for all of us? Hedden pointed to Rewiring America as a resource for information on how the Inflation Reduction Act can help the transition to renewable energy sources. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Deep Dive on the WFHB Local News. In the near future, we will be covering Monroe County's water quality. If you have any questions regarding this topic you would like answered, please call us at 802-552-3483. We would love to hear from you, and we would love to work on answering your questions. Your voice matters. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. 